Saints of God, please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus has just finished preparing his disciples for their public ministry in chapter 10. And in that discourse, Jesus makes sure that the disciples uh, are not surprised at the rejection that they will experience for preaching the gospel from city to city. And then chapter 11 now begins this series of rejections and uncertainties of the kingdom of God. And it begins from an unlikely source. Let's read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, starting at verse 1. We'll go down to verse 6. This is God's holy word. Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in all their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May we receive it as such. Saints of God, is it a sin to doubt? (laughs) I heard no. Um, It depends. If doubt is rooted in unbelief, or whether it's rooted in faith. We have various examples in Scripture of both types of doubt. Namely, well, one of the, the main examples that we find is the difference between Peter and Judas. You see, both of them uh, had fallen in sin. Judas had fallen in his betrayal of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he definitely had doubts about himself, about his calling, about who he was. But in his doubt, it was rooted in unbelief because he never went to the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, on the other hand, also fallen, had fallen. But his doubts led him to the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus he was restored. The Psalms are full of examples of this. And even in the Old Testament, with prophets, the great prophets like Elijah, in 1 Kings 18, when, uh, when Ahab called for a standoff in Mount Carmel, that great scene that you and I are most likely familiar with, this great standoff between the worshipers of Baal and, the, and Yahweh to see which one was real. And so the prophet Elijah says, you set up your burnt offering to you, and you pray to your gods and I will set up this offer, our offering and I pray to the Lord. I love how he says that. You pray to your gods, I'm praying to the actual God, to the Lord of glory, to the living God. And we'll see which one is real. And so we know that the Lord, the Yahweh, answered the call of, his, of Elijah's prayer and sending down fire to confirm his majesty. 
to confirm his presence. But shortly after that, what do we see? We see Ahab and Jezebel seeking after the life of Elijah. And Elijah comes to this place and he goes before the Lord and says, Lord, I have been zealous because of the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I am alone am left, and they seek to take my life. We see another example in Psalm 73, where the psalmist looks around him and sees the wicked prospering. And he said to himself, he, he nearly had slipped. His feet had almost stumbled. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to, to continue on with his struggle. To, to, he can't bear the sight of seeing the wicked seemingly triumph over God's people. David, many, many places, asking the Lord, How long, O Lord? Where are you, O Lord? Why have you forsaken me? The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, who will save me from this body of death? Thomas, after the amazing event of the resurrection, the disciples trying to, to call in Thomas to see the risen Lord, and Thomas would not believe. He said, unless I put my finger in the imprint of his hands, Unless I see the nail marks, I will not believe. In Scripture, doubt is often experienced with spiritual pain and disappointment. When you can't see the light in your life because you're surrounded by darkness. When the weight of your sin suffocates your joy. When the voice of the accuser becomes louder than the voice of your Redeemer when the victory of God's enemies become more believable than God's kingdom. Yes, doubt is something Christians experience. But here's the more important question. How does God handle our doubts? And so this will be answered in our passage before us in Matthew chapter 11. And so the theme of tonight's message will be this, that Jesus confronts our doubts with evidence of his faithfulness and of his sovereign control. So I will break this up into three points uh, as you have uh, before you in your bulletins, an unexpected doubter, why we doubt, and finally, our doubts confronted. Verse 1 of chapter 11 is really a transitional verse where Matthew is letting us know that Jesus has finished his previous major discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, there, there are five major discourses, uh, the first one being the Sermon on the Mount from chapters 5 to 7, and now chapter 10 is the second discourse about missions, the mission of his disciples, and really the mission of the church before Matthew 28 of the Great Commission. And so <clears throat> uh, Matthew, the Gospel writer, is indicating to us that this is completed, but he also focuses on Jesus' purpose, for his coming as he, uh, in his ministry, to teach and to preach. Teaching and preaching are central to Christ's ministry. He doesn't just, uh, he didn't just do that like a, like as, as a trend. 
That was what he did in his ministry. He didn't just tell the disciples to do likewise, and Christ walked the walk as well. He lived and breathed teaching and preaching the word of God, preaching the kingdom, preaching the gospel as the one who is the gospel. And so, verse 2, as Jesus was uh, preaching and teaching from city to city, he was uh, approached by the disciples of John the Baptist. Which is very key for us to understand. Because the last time we hear about John the Baptist is in chapter 4, verse 12, when it tells us that he was imprisoned. Later on in chapter 14, we're going to read more about his imprisonment and in, this, in John the Baptist's interactions with Herod. But as you may recall, John the Baptist's ministry was quite a big deal, especially in chapter 3 in Matthew's Gospel. John the Baptist's ministry was prophesied over six to seven hundred years before his own birth in Isaiah chapter 40. He was the voice of the one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, to make his path straight. And if you remember, in in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us how an angel came to Elizabeth to announce that she would give birth to the forerunner of Christ, and she shall name him John. Commentators suggest that when John actually started to preach repentance, it lasted about six months prior to the Lord's coming. Matthew chapter 3, 11, John says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than, than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If you remember that scene when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, he saw the the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. He heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I am well pleased. And the Gospel of John tells us that John the Baptist said, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Those are John the Baptist's own words. How in the world did he get to this place where he's asking whether or not Jesus is the Messiah? The last year of John the Baptist's life was to be spent in prison, in a dark dungeon of Herod's palace, night after night, thinking, did something go wrong? What happened here? And so, the reason why John the Baptist doubted is the same reason we often doubt is because of failed expectations, which is our next point, why we doubt So what was John's expectation? Well, you read that in Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 10. This is when John the Baptist was preaching to the crowd and and, really to the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so he begins in, uh, in verse 10. 
He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. And then he goes on in, in verse 12. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with the unquenchable fire. You see, what John the Baptist was anticipating, what he was expecting, was judgment. He was preparing the way of the Lord. He was preaching repentance. There's great crowds gathering around him. And then he sees the Messiah. He sees Jesus face to face in the flesh, saying this is the, the Lamb of God who shall come to, to uh, save us from our sins. But judgment didn't come. He thought once the Messiah came, this whole thing is going to be flipped upside down. These, these Roman authoritarians, this empire is going to crumble and the kingdom of God will be displayed in all of its glory once and for all. That's what he was expecting. Saints of God, has Christ failed to meet your expectations in your life? Are you like John the Baptist asking, is Christ really the one in control? If Christ was truly sovereign, if he's truly reigning, if he's truly the king of kings, why is the world the way that it is? If Christ were truly sovereign over my life, why does my life look the way it does? If Christ was in control over my life, why am I not growing in my faith? If Christ was in control of my, over my marriage, why do we struggle so hard? Why the nights so long? If Christ was in control of my kids, why are they not turning out the way that I'm hoping? Why are they making those decisions? If God would change certain things about my spouse, my life would be so much better. You see, expectations can be very dangerous when self-interests, your self-interests, are placed at the center. When you judge according to what you see in your circumstances, what you feel in your emotions. And that's what John the Baptist did, essentially. He was in a dark dungeon. Judgment did not come. And so he thought to himself, maybe this Jesus isn't the coming one. Maybe we're, we're, we're waiting for the true Messiah to come. By God's grace, Jesus does not, does not leave John. He does not leave us in our doubts. As we'll see in our final point. He says, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see. The lame walk. And he goes on with this, these, this, this list of all these healings. Jesus is doing a couple things here, which is pretty interesting. He is summarizing his healing ministry that, he, that had occurred in chapters 8 and 9 in Matthew's Gospel. 
But he's also doing something very, very clever. Jesus chooses his words carefully because these words John would have recognized immediately what he was talking about. Pay attention to the tense of how Jesus is describing the healings here in this passage and pay attention to the tense of Isaiah chapter 35. Please turn with me to Isaiah 35. Chapter 35 of Isaiah tells us about the future glory of Zion or or the kingdom of God. How do we know when it comes about? We'll pick it up in verse 5. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And verse 6, then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For the waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Do you, do you see the, the tense that is different? In Isaiah, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Jesus says, The blind see. In other words, the waiting is over, John. Haven't you ever read this passage before? You have tickets to a front row seat to the coming Messiah and the evidence of the coming Messiah, which is this healing ministry. The blind see now. Not shall see. The blind see now. The lepers are cleansed now. And you are witnesses of this truth. See, Jesus does not just rebuke John by saying, how dare you, John, doubt me? Or cast them away? Jesus says, look at the evidence of my faithfulness that word that was prophesied all of those years ago, I am the same God who keeps his promises. And God has done this many, many times in the Bible. With Elijah, God did not just leave Elijah to wallow in his doubts, But he says instead to Elijah, you're not alone. There are 7,000 more of my faithful people that I have preserved. The psalmist in Psalm 73, the tune changes of that psalm starting at verse 17 when he enters into the sanctuary of God Why? Because in the sanctuary is where God is present. It's where he would have seen pieces of God's uh, promises, of his sacrifices, of of, of the history that God has always been faithful to his people. And that was enough to change his heart and his mind to see that the Lord is not going anywhere. that what he said will be true, 
that even though these wicked people who are prospering now, the Lord is going to judge them accordingly. And the same thing with John the Baptist. God shows John, I am faithful. I keep my promises. You can see it with your own eyes. Now what about us? Jesus' healing ministry does not continue like it did at that point in time in history. It doesn't matter. In fact, we have something better. You see, the whole point of those healing ministries is not just an, a means to an end of, uh, within the healing itself. The purpose of Jesus healing the lepers, healing the blind, is to teach us that he has given us new sight, that, he has, that we, we who were once unclean has made us clean, that the Lord has reached into our life and, and touched us with his own hand, so to speak to make us clean by the washing of His blood. You see, the eyes of the blind see today through the preaching of the Word, through the Gospel being proclaimed, and people from all over are still coming to Christ. As God says in Isaiah 55, when my Word goes forth, it does not come back void. It never comes back void. It will accomplish exactly the purpose on which I sent it. Jesus mercifully combats John's doubts. God mercifully helps us to combat our doubts, saints of God. So in conclusion, doubt your doubts Doubt your doubts. Don't determine what is true by what you see with your eyes and what you see or what you feel in your circumstances. They will deceive you. They will deceive you. I like how one pastor said it. Don't believe everything you feel. Your emotions are the greatest liars you know. Preach the truth to your emotions and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth will begin to change your emotions. See, you see, our emotions don't determine what is true. The truth determines what we are to feel in our circumstances. That's why when we read the psalmist, they, they, they conclude the way they do so oftentimes that they can come to God with honesty, they can come to God with their struggles and their doubts, but they know in their heart that His Word is true regardless of how they feel regardless of how their circumstances may seem. Saints of God, when you cannot make sense of your present, look to what God has done in the past. David says in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not His benefits. What benefits are those, David? Well, he tells you, he's actually preaching to himself what those benefits are. He has to remind himself constantly, the Lord who has, given, who has forgiven all of your iniquities, who has healed all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things. David teaches us 
to preach to our own selves, our own souls, until our doubts succumb to the truth of God's rich mercy. How gracious our God is. How gracious our God is that He is patient with us even when we falter, even when our, our knees buckle under the weight of our trials, the Lord does not quickly forsake us. In fact, He will never forsake us. And finally, excuse me, in, in, in verse 6, when Jesus says, and blessed is He who is not offended because of Me, that means that He is gracious and patient when we come to Him with our doubts. But it doesn't mean that we can just continue doubting and doubting and doubting and doubting and doubting and doubting for the rest of our life. Because when God answers us, when God gives us His Word, when God proves of His faithfulness, we have to submit to what He has said until our hearts are anchored in that truth. We cannot have God kowtow to our expectations. That's not how this works. He says to us, be still and know that I am God. Do not be offended because of me, of my word. Don't be ashamed of being my disciple, of being my follower. Follow me. Trust in the word that I give to you. And saints of God, by his grace, our doubts will turn into confidence. As Hebrews says, that faith is the assurance of, thing, of the, the, the sure things of things unseen, the certainty. That's what God grants us by his mercies. All of God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, Lord, that you are so gracious to us. Father, that you do not grow weary and tired of our complaining, of our moaning, of our doubts, of our struggles and our faith. But Father, by your Spirit, you comfort us with your presence, with your faithfulness. Give us eyes to see the evidence of your faithfulness and help our doubts to turn into thankfulness, into gratitude, that you may be given the praise and glory, that we may help others in their doubts, in their struggles, and help them to see how faithful you are. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sins of God, let's respond by singing together number 581. 581, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Number 581.
Amen. Saints of God, look up now and receive the parting blessing of your God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.